Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin from Mishkin Law in Chicago, joined as always by my co-host, Rob Hunt of Lene Holdings out in San Diego, and our fearless producer, Dan Humiston, who it looks like this time is actually back in uh, his place in Denver or, or out in the mountains somewhere. So, Dan, nice to have you along. Rob, what's going on? Just hanging out in Southern California with crazy amounts of stuff happening in the cannabis industry these days. So, lots to talk about this week, Larry. Yeah, there's a lot to talk about. There's a lot of stuff going on. We're T-minus about a week and a half to MJ Biz, so everybody's getting really excited about that. Uh, we are hoping that we will be able to tape an episode of our podcast from MJ Biz. So for Chris, Chris Walsh and all our good buddies at MJ Biz who are listening, make sure we get our press passes, please, and we will be there to do our dazzling show and impress everyone. On today's show, we uh, have another fun Grateful Dead uh, concert that we're going to be talking about. And, you know, it seems like I don't really even have to dig that hard to find special and unique shows. Today's is uh, November 7th, 1971, 51 years ago today, for those of us who are bad at math on the spot. And it's from the Harding Theater in San Francisco. Let's just get right into the beginning and you'll see that the dead route for a fun time this night. Dan, what do you got? Now don't get all excited because we're still tuning up. If you are sitting at home next to your radio, or if you are sitting at home next to your radio, you're hearing the music faster than you are if you're in the hall. That's an interesting, but true. We won't bore you with lengthy explanations of this phenomenon. That's a, I, get. I would say that was about 432 cycles. Is there anybody near a filter? <laughs> oh. Makes you howl like a hippie. So, Rob, I got to tell you, the early 1970s, the late 60s, I, I love listening to these shows because you always get this hilarious onstage banter here among Jerry, Bobby, and Phil. They're laughing. They're joking it up. They're, they're having fun. And, and, you know, maybe fans back in those days could take it for granted. But even by the time I started seeing shows in 1982, Jerry said practically nothing from the stage. Bobby would make a statement or two other than, you know, we'll be back in a few minutes and thank you very much at the end of the night. And every now and then he might have something to say, but nothing like this. This is just, this is fun, right? This is, this is fun listening to these guys have fun. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, I took it for granted that I would never hear them speak on stage. And, you know, once in a while after like a We Want Phil chant, you know, Phil might say something like, you know, why not We Want Mickey or We Want, you know, Bill. But that was that was about the most you got outside of, you know, um, you know, if there's a, a major technical issue on stage that, you know, someone might say something about trying to fix something. But there was never any banter. There was never any joking on stage. And I think that that, you know, mainly ended in the late 70s. So I, I feel like in a lot of ways we uh, we grew up in the wrong generation of, of stage banter. Now, the other side of that, and this is something I've always appreciated when I go see other bands, and I'm like, oh, just shut up and play your songs, is what I did see was just musicianship and, and you know, working the craft rather than, you know, trying to, to influence or, or, you know, have interaction with the audience. It was like, look, you came to watch us play our instruments and play music, and that's what we're going to do for you. So I'm not sure which one I appreciate more, but uh, I agree. When I listen to these old 70s shows, it is so much fun hearing those guys having fun on stage together. Right. In fact, I can almost probably say that the highlight of my Jerry Garcia talking on stage moment came in the midst of a we want Phil, we want Phil chant. And Jerry stepped up to the mic and said, you can't have him. He's ours. 
And we all thought, wow, that's the, that's great. Jerry's saying something, he's making a joke. And, you know, it, it, it was wonderful. And, you know, maybe it got to a point where it's just a business for him. Maybe it got to a point where it was just the sooner we play, the sooner we can get off and go do our thing or whatever. Um, or, you know, maybe as they got a little bit older, they got, just got a little less playful. Um, but I always like starting off a show like that when they come out and before you even really get started, they're, they're just cracking it up with everybody. And the nice part about this is that this theater, the Harding Theater located on Divisadero Street in San Francisco, uh, it, it's an old Gothic building. It opened in 1926 as a movie theater and pretty much played movies until the uh, 1970 or so. And then it transformed into this live music venue that could seat at most maybe 1,200 people. The Dead have only played there two times, and that was these two nights, November 6th, and then the uh, the, the night before this show we're featuring, and then the November 7th show. And it's just, it, it, it's such a great place. Uh, it's so small, so intimate. Uh, and maybe that's also what brought out, uh, you know, the Dead's banter is, you know, you can almost practically feel like, you know, they, they were talking to members of the audience with a crowd that small, you know, that they could go ahead and they could do that. So uh, it is fun. The music is great. Jerry at the time was calling themselves a saloon rock band whatever that means or saloon band saloon band rock um you know whatever he meant when he said that but i think we all have a pretty good idea of of music that we've heard when we visited saloons over the time and the other good part about this show is this is just a month less than a month after keith joined the band in october and less than two months before donna first donna's first show on new year's eve this year so you could really say it's the beginning of the changing of the guard you know, on this show, we only get to do at most five, maybe one minute clips of music. The band played over 31 songs in this show. We couldn't even get to most of it, but I think that the uh, songs that we get, did get to are pretty reflective of it. And uh, we'll be coming back to listen to a few more of these tunes um, in a couple of minutes. Yeah. So, uh, again, I always think that there's probably not a venue in San Francisco the guys haven't played in. And, uh, you know, we obviously talk about all the ones that are best known, but it, it's random. Like, you forget that a lot of these cities, you know, I always forget it when you walk down the street of any major city, that behind some of the doors that just look like, you know, standard doors, there might be a twelve or 1,500-person venue there. And in New York City, I forget, you know, the most. When you just walk down Broadway in general, you forget that, like, you're passing by all these marquees that Broadway plays, but behind those marquees is some beautiful theater that was opened up in the vaudevillian days, you know, usually in, like, the early 1900s, that, you know, someone's been keeping these places alive. And that's what, you know... It's kind of a lost start. A lot of those theaters over the years have closed, but certain cities have managed to keep them alive. London and New York being, you know, the two primary ones. But uh, but there's still a handful of, of those great theaters in San Francisco. And that's one of the things I always loved about the Warfield this year. You're walking down Market Street. It looks like this nondescript kind of, um, you know, building front. And then you walk in and you're like, where the hell did this come from? And, uh, and I think it's terrific. I think it's terrific. I mean, Denver's still got quite a few of them in uh in you know the the ogden theater and the gothic theater and some of the other ones there's you know such cool rooms in chicago where you are i mean the avalon you know there, there's a handful of just great rooms that for me like my favorite way to see music is is in those um in, in those rooms more than a shed more than a stadium more than a you know than a um, sports arena but you know you go into a room that was designed for sound designed you know to, to have people go watch a, a performance it's the best way to see music Absolutely. And yes, kids listening at home, there was a time when the Grateful Dead could actually play in theaters that only held 800 to maybe 1,200 people uh, long before their soldier field days and uh, all the big sheds everywhere where they played because the demand was so great. Uh, they had to be able to accommodate the people that wanted to see the show. But uh, surely to have the opportunity to see them in one of these old small theaters at any time uh, would have been fantastic. 
that's nice about some of the other bands, for instance, like Umphreys, which, you know, I think has a fairly good uh, following. And I got tuned on to them a little bit this summer at the Sacred Rose. And now they're coming back to Chicago in a couple of weeks. And I'm going to be seeing them at the Riviera Nightclub, which is another one of these, uh, you know, old fashioned theaters that they've, you know, turned into a really great concert venue. You know, I'm excited to be able to see them in that theater. And then, in fact, a week or two later, we're seeing J-Rad in the exact same building. And, you know, what a treat it is, you know, really to be in there among a smaller crowd. You can really appreciate it, I think, a lot. And the music is amazing. Yeah, and you, you just saw Tab a couple of days ago, Larry. Uh, so I'm guessing that was in a relatively small theater. Um, how was the Tab show? Tab was great. Uh, it was my first true Tab show. I had been previously, I'd seen Trey play a couple of times, uh, but never in a Tab capacity. And uh, was very happy to be able to do that. Was blown away by uh, his band, uh, one of the most amazing horn sections I've ever seen uh, with Jennifer Hartsman and Natalie, was Natalie Cressman, Cressman? I believe so. Yep. And Jennifer Hartswick. It's definitely Jennifer Hartswick who's been with the band for, for years and years. Um, and, you know, I've seen play probably at least 25 or 30 times in Burlington, Vermont, in a tiny little place called Red Square. She used to play solo shows. And she was, uh, she's a powerhouse. She's amazing. She was amazing. They were both amazing. And what was amazing to me was all of a sudden I'm sitting there and they, they're not playing the horns and they're singing and not just singing, but singing with amazing singing voices, totally filling in, adding a whole nother, a whole nother, another dimension, not just the powerful horns that they brought, but fantastic voice. What a great band. The bass player, I didn't even catch his name, but uh, he was standing way, way, way in the back off. You couldn't basically see him all night, but you could hear him. And his presence was amazing. Two drummers. I'm like, wow, I love this about Trey. Uh, he just surrounds himself with such amazing musicians, you know, that it was really such a treat uh, to be able to see him in that kind of a venue and to see that. And then the, the show was fantastic. And for me, uh, truly, I think the best part about it was that there was enough fish songs that they played that I was actually able to, you know, to keep track with all of that and enjoy that so much. I, I didn't know the Trey songs quite as much as I would have liked to, uh, but certainly I'm very happy to, to have gotten to hear, hear the ones that I did. And it, it's kind of like a new experience. You know, I think it's definitely, as we talked about before, not unlike going to see a, a Jerry band show, right? Because it's, it's all Trey all the time. So when he's playing uh, opening with ghost or playing everything's right, that's great. Roll Like a River, I actually heard a couple of times because uh, I've, I've caught that on the radio. Ocelot, I've heard before. And then he, paid, he played Shine, which made me laugh because I, I bought that album 15 or 20 years ago when it came out as a solo album. And we saw him play Shine at Vegas back in 2006. So it was fun to hear that. But what was really amazing was after two full sets, they walked off the stage for a minute, came back on. Not they, Trey came back on threw on his acoustic guitar and, you know, cranked out theme from the bottom, chalk dust torture and more. So absolutely amazing. And then we're all clapping, thinking he's done. Then he picks up his electric guitar and the band came back out and they closed out with first tube. So for a show that started at about seven thirty-seven forty-five, he played till 1125, brought the house down. Uh, my buddy and I had a great time, had a good meal before great show. And after all of that, we still got out in enough time to catch the 10th inning of the first game of the World Series at a local watering hole and uh, got to see that amazing finish. So all in all, it was a great night. My advice to anyone is if you have a chance to see Trey, go see him. Yeah, coming up here pretty soon, your chances to go see Trey with Tab, or excuse me, with Goose. 
And for all those that didn't see it, Goose just got their late night um, first appearance on Jimmy Kimmel Live the other night. So, you know, if you had a chance to do that, uh, go check it out on YouTube. You can certainly find it. But Kimmel's opening of uh, introducing Goose is pretty funny. It's saying all my friends that eat mushrooms have been uh, telling me to see this band. And, you know, they're right. So, uh and then the whole audience started just, you know, sort of chanting goose. And Kimmel's like, oh, those aren't booze. That's that's them chanting goose. But, uh, you know, it's, it's great to see some of these young bands getting uh, a fair amount of attention, not just with other musicians, but um, but with the mainstream as well. So, you know, hats off to Goose. And going to see Tab and Goose together, I think, should be a hell of a lot of fun coming up here in the next couple of weeks. I agree. My son's going to check out one of the shows on the East Coast, so I'm all set to get a uh – a great update from him as well. The other thing about this show, though, that I learned that I guess I just, you know, not part of the fish culture enough to know, but we walked by the theater on our way to dinner, probably an hour and a half before they said they were going to be opening the doors. And there was a line of people around the building. And we asked somebody why. And they said, because they were selling Pollock posters. I didn't know what a Pollock poster was till it was explained to me that he he's he, he does work for the band or maybe more for Trey and that whatever his poster was, his specially created poster for Chicago, they were selling just a limited number of them for 50 or 60 bucks, but they would soon be worth $1,000 and everybody wanted to get their hands on it. We went off to eat and came back later and, you know, the line was gone and the posters, of course, were all sold out. I did have a chance to see what one looks like online and they look really nice, but I'm not used to that kind of thing. You know, my feeling is if you're going to a concert, just sell posters to the fans who are at the, anybody who goes and wants to buy a poster, why not? You know, otherwise they're, they're, they're creating the, the collection culture, culture that drives prices up for the, the common guy. Yeah. But I mean, like Jim Pollock is like so much, so intertwined into like Fish's culture. I mean, in many ways that if you think about the way Chris Kuroda is as a light man, or you think about, you know, the way that, um, I'm spacing his name that's written all of Trey's songs. Like there, there, there's so many people that are surrounding Fish's, um, Fish's community. And, and Jim Pollock is certainly one of those people uh, in the same way that like um, Mouse or Kelly would have been for the Grateful Dead. Right. You know, so you, you kind of have to have the artisans um, surrounding you that, uh, that, you know, kind of make a tick, which by the way, is a great segue into, I don't know if you saw this, but um you know, Garcia's pipe was just recovered. It was one of Owsley Stanley's old creations that was discovered in Merle Saunders' house and sold to a collector. But, you know, you want to talk about a, a great story of an artist and, a, and an artisan who is, you know, closely intertwined with, with a band. Owsley, you can talk about his belt buckles. You can talk about the, uh, the marching bears. You can talk about all the other things he created. But the fact that he created a spirit pipe for Garcia and, you know, then it resurfaces. And obviously there's all sorts of questions about the dubiousness of the authenticity um, but you know, the, the story appears to be verified. Rolling Stone just did an article on it and yeah, I know you had a chance to check that out, but what'd you think? Look, I think it's great. You know, and as a guy who still prefers to combust as the kids say, I definitely, uh, understand the importance of having a good piece. Everybody needs one. And, uh, back in the day when they were all wood and they'd always, you know, eventually kind of get all messed up and now it's glass and the little grass glass screens and trying to keep up with that. But it, it, none of this surprises me. It doesn't surprise me that Owsley Stanley would, you know, would manufacture pipes, make them. Uh, he's, you know, he was that kind of guy. He could easily have the skills and the talent to do it. And it doesn't surprise me that he would do it as a spirit pipe. Um, it's great that he gave it to Garcia. It's great that the story goes Garcia was the only one who ever smoked out of it. And then it disappeared off the face of the earth. I had never heard about it before this story. I'd never heard Deadheads talk about it. I'd never heard Big Steve talk about it. I'd never heard Jerry talk about it. But the story goes that a little while ago, uh, when he was cleaning out his house, Merle Saunders moved a bed from against a wall and wedged up between the mattress and the wall was this pipe. Uh, 
and they found it and nobody could believe it. And there is a collector's community out there and they dived into it. And, and what I like is uh, the quote was, it still smells like weed. So, you know, maybe that's just a little embellishment to make a good story even better. But hey, as a guy who loves Jerry and has gotten high many a time out of a good pipe listening to the Grateful Dead play, I like that story. Yeah, me too. I, I thought it was more interesting. It wasn't actually Merle. It was Merle's son, right? So Merle, Merle passed in 2008. And and so like that's where I was like, okay, you know, this is some bullshit story where his kid's like, oh, yeah, man, that was Jerry's pipe, you know, and you could just say anything at that point because there's no one to verify it. And that's where the person that actually bought it, you know, not knowing necessarily how authentic it was, you know, did enough sleuthing around and was able to actually verify that, in fact, you know, uh, Owsley, uh, Stanley did, in fact, make this pipe and I think made it while he was in prison on his, after his LSD bust. And uh, it was, you know, a spirit, a spirit pipe with kind of a spirit animal. And the thing that was really cool about it, some of the engravings in there was, you know, the, the cast under the stars engraving was on there and there was another engraving on there that, that you know, Owsley would have had to figure out, you know, how to get these tools, uh, you know, in, in a place where it's not that easy to, to find tools. So, you know, the entire story, like, you know, again, I, I could find something behind my bed and be like, oh, yeah, that was so-and-so's, you know, that's been passed for, for the last 15 years. But to actually put the pieces back together and do the sleuthing, that's where I thought the, uh, the story was, was super cool. And, you know, the fact that you know, Merle's kid was like, yeah, you know, Jerry used to come over here and this is when they were making Blues from the Rainforest together. And this is the pipe that Jerry smoked out and no one else ever smoked out of it. And I don't know whether that was because maybe other things besides cannabis were smoked in that pipe or whether or not it was... Um, you know, specifically because like there's just a, a reason that that was his, and he only you know used it. But the fact that it was long lost behind a uh, what sounded like a Murphy bed of some sort, you know, is a like I love stories like that just because they're fun. Me too, and I, I I'm a I'm a sucker for that kind of trivia and arcane knowledge. And and I think the other design that one was you're right, the cats under the stars. The other one was the tiger that uh, was the same design that was eventually put on his guitar. So, you know, I mean, I, I find it hard to believe that, uh, you know, somebody else would casually be walking around with a handmade pipe with all that stuff on there. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to vote in favor of legit. Um, and if nobody in the uh, Garcia family has come forward to dispute us of that notion, then uh, I think that uh, uh, that's that's a great story. And, yeah, it, it's fun. And I think what it does is it, it it just normalizes Jerry a little bit more for deadheads, right? We all have our pipes. We can all relate to what it means to have a, your, your favorite pipe or one that you really like smoking out of. And Jerry had one too, you know, and you can also relate to the fact where you've put one down usually, you know, because you've used it too much and you have no idea where you put it down. And now you're prepared to have to move on without it. And what can be better than, you know, a few weeks later stumbling and saying, look what, look what I found under the couch or, you know, wherever it might be. So my, my favorite pipe still resides with, uh, with our buddy, Matty Veach, who, uh, who's come on the show before. And Matty's now on leftover salmon tour and just ran the stage for, uh, for the Halloween shows down in Sewanee, uh, Florida. But my favorite pipe in the world, he's been carrying around with him for about the last 15 years. And he always jokes around. He's like, well, if you want, I'll send it back. And I was like, nah, man, you use, you know, use it far more than I would. I'm like, just don't break it because it's, it's an old Bob Snodgrass shop pipe that was made by Bob Batram and Cameron that, uh, you know, at some point, you, know, that you want to talk about something that's got value like a Jim Pollock poster, you know, that the earliest days of the Snodgrass shop, you know, a lot of those pipes now are, are absolute collector's items. So there's part of me that's like, I want that thing back, but I never use it. I just want to know that I have it. So in case I ever want to do something with it, but then I'm like, yeah, pipes are meant to be smoked out of. So if there's someone that's, uh, that, that's still using it, you know, I'd rather the Veach have it than, than me. And I, I don't think the Veach is using it. I think he's gone sober now. So I don't even know who's getting the benefit of that pipe. 
<laughs> so. Sure. And it's great fun, you know, and you take good care of your pipe, make sure it's all nice and clean. Always, you know, you got to be able to impress somebody else with it. Um, but, but here's my question for you, as long as we're talking pipes for a minute, were you a grind it up first and then pour it in guy? Or were you just pull a little bit off the bud and stuff it in there? <laughs> I was a, uh, a pork, the tip and jam it in the top of the pipe. No, I didn't, I didn't grind. I, I didn't even hit the grinding until I moved to British Columbia briefly and I was watching all these guys use coffee grinders to like grind for their joints, and they're all using you know twist grinders to uh, to twist their pipes. Now I was the guy that would just like pork a tip of the nug off the top and just jam it right in there. Yeah, you know, I, certainly uh, we've all gone that route when circumstances uh, command. But I figured out a long time ago that if I ground it up and uh, used it that way, that you were actually you could you could get better mileage out of it, right? You didn't have to like wind up with maybe half a bud that was kind of burned through, but not really quite used and you know, when you grind it up. But on the other hand, you know, when you grind it up, I think it's kind of hard. You, you lose track of how much you're really smoking because it's more in there than what would appear to be. But, you know, just one of those things where, you know, I think anytime you find a guy who's a, a, a marijuana pot smoker, you have through a pipe, you have to find out whether they grind your stuff. Yeah. So I always had the mantra of if I sold enough weed, it really didn't matter how much I smoked. So, you know, there's there always more. So, you know, keep, keep stacking. It didn't really much, didn't really much matter. Uh, you know, nowadays I think it's a, you, know, you take, you take a little, little more nuanced approach as you get older. I, I, I can't disagree with that, uh, for sure. So yeah, just, uh, so much of that fun stuff going on. And I got to tell you, this is a little bit why, you know, I'm, I, I'm kind of late to the party, but I'm going to MJ biz this year. And, and besides the fact that we'll be taping a podcast there, if we haven't said it already, is cause I, I just like, it's been a long time since I've been in a group that large of so many like-minded people. Benzinga here was nice. But MJ Biz is, you know, you could basically anybody on the street in Las Vegas you bump into is more or less there for that conference. And uh, it's just such a great opportunity to, to see old friends, to tell old stories, uh, you know, to, to, to talk about this kind of stuff. And uh, so I'm very excited to get out there and, and see a lot of the old crew, some of the Hoban folks, maybe even Mr. Hoban himself. Heck, anybody who's going to make their way out to Las Vegas, uh, we'll look forward to seeing as many as we can. You'll be there too, will you not, Rob? I will. I uh, just booked my tickets today, but uh, we'll see. I've got meetings pretty well stacked up, and most of them are away from the conference. But uh, I always look forward to it, if, as you said, to, to see old friends. And it's usually some good dinners and some good lunches and, you know, always interesting conversation. But uh, but I find the entire thing, you know, I, I find Las Vegas in general overwhelming. I'm not a huge fan of Las Vegas. So I'm not a huge, you know, go out late and party. And I'm definitely not like your strip club guy, so that's not really my scene. But, you know, as far as, uh, you know, taking in some of the other stuff, as far as like, you know, the, the restaurants and, and the music, I'm all for it. And I think it'll be a lot of fun. And, you know, for 24 to 48 hours, I usually have a good time there. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think those are definitely the things that attract me more when I'm in Las Vegas. Um, you know, my, my standard line is I'll just walk into the casino, pull out a hundred dollar bill and set it on fire. And then I've lost my money, but much faster. And I don't have to sit there and stress as my misplay my hands, not being a, not being a very good card player, but you know, there's a few people uh, in the crowd that I'll be hanging out with that, that like to do that. So I inevitably I wind up venturing in and looking around and trying to figure out what number I can play on roulette. Cause at least I understand what's going on, but it will be a nice time. I'm, I'm looking forward to getting back there and actually spending a little bit of time this year in the uh, convention center for a change. So, uh, uh, hopefully, if we see anybody out there, please come up and say hello, and uh, we'd love to talk to you. Turning back for a minute to uh, this concert of ours, one of the things about this show that really caught my eye, uh, again, we're talking about November 7th, 1971, from the Harding Theater in San Francisco, is that four songs into it, the dead uh, break out a tune called Hideaway, 
Uh, it's an instrumental tune by uh, bluesman Freddie King from back in the day. You know, to say the least, the boys kill it. They they just do an amazing job of it. The records on this are hard to track down, but the story that I'm generally seeing is that they only played this song twice on this occasion, and that one more time in 1989 they broke it out at Shoreline. So just as an aside and note to myself and note to us to schedule, I'll have to reach out to our good but mysterious friend Alex Wellens because he was probably at every Shoreline show there ever was, and uh, he might be able to fill us in on that. But this is just a uh, this is a great tune. You know why the band decided to play it this night and then not play it for you know another 18 years. I can't tell you. But Dan, go ahead and, and let's listen to uh, Jerry and the boys do a little bluesmanship. That was a lot of fun to listen to. I really, really enjoyed that. And, you know, what's so nice is not just that you've got uh, uh, Jerry, you know, kind of fronting what's become a blues band all of a sudden and uh, and really, you know, playing with that rhythm uh, like a like a true blues master. You've got Keith, the new guy in the band who's playing a honky tonk organ. And, you know, just as he that, that's I picked that part of the song because I really wanted to hear Keith laying it out like that. Uh, everybody talked about uh, in the reviews of the show and in there, there's a. There's actually an entire article if you want to go online, if you're really interested in why the dead play certain tunes. And uh, there's a huge article on this hideaway tune. I mean, when they talk about it, and even in the comments on the show, people just say that they think that once Keith joined the band, Jerry felt like he finally had a guy with the right kind of keyboard chops to be able to, to take it out for a ride. Or maybe he just decided to play it that night and Keith was able to keep up and play along. But it was great. And if you missed it, like I say, you had to wait 18 years to catch it at Shoreline. And if you missed it then, then you missed it. That was it. So, you know, you can talk about being on the bus. You can talk about being off the bus. But sometimes you have to, like, be in the front row of the bus uh, if you really want to see everything. And, uh, you know, this is probably one of those occasions. Yeah, I mean, I think there's probably only about four or five people that saw both hideaways, and those people were all on stage. So so, uh, (laughs) I don't... I don't think there's too many people that can say they saw either one of them, much less both of them. Yeah, I think that's probably true. But it will be interesting to see if uh, if Alex knows that. And as long as I've mentioned his name, I do have to let you know that when I was at the Trey show, he was at the Philoween show, the, the Friday night show of Halloween weekend um, with his wife, Andy. And we were texting back and forth. And he was telling me about that show. And it sounded really, really good. Um, and I'm talking about uh, our show. And it was funny because at that moment, uh, you know, I said to him, oh my goodness, there's uh, all of these uh, women playing uh, horns and how good they are. And, uh, you know, this is just so amazing. You know, you should really come and hear them because they they play, then they sing. 
And he turns to me and he says out of nowhere, you know, basically the exact same thing. Oh, he said, oh, Jennifer and Natalie. Yeah, they're really great. And of course, I'm like, come on. No, Alex knows everything. He knew who they were. He had heard him play before. So we will get him on the show because uh, anybody who knows music that well uh, can't be kept from the public forever. Yeah, no doubt. And, and I don't know if you saw the, uh, the set list from the 31st uh, from those film friend shows. But it's insane, and I've yet to watch the full video because I keep getting like tied up with something else. But to end the show, they played a help slip, a memory of Elizabeth Reed, Franklin's Tower, Blue Sky, and just fused Grateful Dead and Almonds Brothers to, uh, together. And supposedly it's just amazing. So I've got to check that out. Well, I think they had Dwayne Betts on stage with them that night. Yeah, I think I think that's uh, I, I gotta look at who was um, who was in the band that night. But uh, but yeah, there's certainly Almond Brothers um, members that were that were there. And I heard that uh, they closed uh, with Werewolves. They did, yep. They played uh, Werewolves as the encore after the Blue Sky. So that, that whole set was, uh, was pretty fun. That's why, you know, I say if you, if you really want to go with just experience, you know, crazy throwdown, Grateful Dead, rock and roll spirited stuff, you got to go see Phil at the Capitol Theater. You know, no dissing Bobby, no dissing uh, Wolf Brothers or Dead & Co. or any of that. But when Phil's playing in that cozy little joint, and, and, and that's exactly the type of theater that we're talking about here, although probably a little bit larger than the Harding. But nevertheless, what a great place. And uh, any deadhead who wanted to see, you know, really experience what the Grateful Dead was like, go see these guys. Because Phil always has such talented lineups on stage with him it's something everybody should experience at least once. So, uh, at any rate, we had a good time texting back and forth. We were both enjoying our shows and how unique it is, uh, for the grateful dead back at that time, while they're kind of going through this, uh, shift in, in the type of music that they play, but it's never a full shift, is it Rob? And, uh, you know, if you walked in at a certain point, you might be forgiven for thinking that in fact, you know, it was still 69 or 70 because shortly thereafter, the boys drop into a dark star that's, uh, absolutely incredible for so many reasons um it's a relatively short one by dead standards it's listed at 15 minutes but you know there's one minute of pre-song noodling so it really only boils down to about 14 minutes uh this has to be one of the first ones that keith has ever played with them and if you're ever looking if if somebody ever says to you hey can you recommend a dark star where phil just kind of takes it over this is that one He, he just has a great time and it really seems to me that this is the kind of show and this is the kind of music, you know, you'd be wanting and making sure you have some of that uh, new hot polka dot psilocybin infused chocolate bars that are going around and uh, making a big scene right now because, uh, well, go ahead and play it, Dan, and you'll hear why. This is just a great dark start. Rob, that's what I was referring to a couple of times in there where Phil just boom, 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 boom 
all the way through. And, you know, there were some nights where Phil really wanted people to know uh, that he was making his presence felt on stage. You know, there was other nights where maybe he'd take more of a secondary role. Uh, but this was certainly a night where Phil decided to let it all hang out. Yeah, for sure. And then it, as you uh, said, as we were, you know, coming on to air, you know, we cover Dark Star relatively frequently on the show. And we definitely talked with Miami 89 Dark Star just the, uh, or Miami 88, I guess, Dark Star just the other day. Or no, 89, sorry. And this is such a, a, a juxtaposition because they're, like, they're so different. You know, you look at what they were doing in 1971 for, for Dark Stars versus what they were doing in 89. In some ways, it's actually really fun to, you know, cover the same song three, four, five times in a row because you really get to see the difference in how they're played during different eras. But this one, as you said, you know, it's Phil thumping, you know, full tilt through it with just a much, much different feel to it than what you were getting in the, uh, the, the stars that came back after 89. I think that's true. And, 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 you know, look, by 89, it was a different era. Jerry was a different guy. They were all a lot older. And, uh, you know, I'm sure that they that they addressed the song, you know, differently and, and, and they, you know, and they and they went after it differently. But that's the beauty of Dark Star, you know, and for every person who's out there and like, well, it's, yeah, it's just a lot of, you know, weird noises and a couple of strange lyrics if they even bother to think it. But, you know, to me, Dark Star is the epitome of living, breathing, grateful dead. Right. This is this is their ultimate vehicle for doing what they want to do more so than even like a Viola Lee blues or, you know, a, a plane in the band jumping off into, you know, an hour of noodling or whatever. This is, this was like, you know, organized chaos and how they approached that organized chaos differed by, you know, wh wh where in time they were and where they were, you know, in their careers, where they were age-wise, where they were everything. And, you know, I, I, I it's no surprise, I guess, you know, back in 1971, you know, they were really at the top of their game. You know, the age-wise, they were peaking. Health-wise, they were peaking. Popularity-wise, they were peaking. And I'm glad that it, you know, it motivated them in, in, in these ways to, you know, produce this wonderful music and these great memories of them just going out and really having a great time before it became a job, before it became a chore, before Jerry had to worry about whether anything he said on stage might wind up in some homemade, you know, prayer book with him on the cover, you know, as the, as the omnipotent king of the universe kind of thing. And, and, you know, the beauty of Dark Star is that every time they play it, they can play it however they want and people still love it. Yep. Without a doubt. And it's, uh, you know, the one thing that you're assured of is you have absolutely no idea what you're getting when, when it starts, you know, it's, a uh, you know what the verses are going to be, but you have no idea what the exploration is going to be. This is very true. Just turning away for a moment here, because we could stay on this show and, and dead-related stuff the whole time. And the last couple of times we've hit the marijuana very hard, but let's go back and hit it again if we shall. A lot going on. We have an election coming up now tomorrow. Uh, this election is tomorrow, folks. So if you're listening today, uh, please vote. I, I will not tell you how to vote. I won't even suggest to you how to vote because how you vote is none of my damn business, but vote. Uh, and actually I'll take that back. It is my damn business if we're talking about marijuana initiatives because literally this is my business. So uh, please vote. And if you are in a state where there is a uh, adult use ballot measure, please vote for it. Even if you don't smoke, even if marijuana is not your thing, think of the people for who it is. And, you know, uh, if you need to go back and, uh, you know, listen to some of our prior shows and, uh, you know, get a true understanding for why all of these stories, uh, just listen to what, what Mason Tavert was telling us when he was on the show and go back and read his book and, and understand and be convinced that, that this is okay. I, I hear stories about somebody who's getting ready to open and it turns out 
that there's an ice cream store a few doors down and the ice cream store person won't have it. So rather than fight, they're, they're moving, but they're only moving a couple of blocks away. Look, I, I can understand, I guess, if you're an ice cream store and you're serving small kids from time to time, you don't want to necessarily have a marijuana store there, but that kind of presupposes that the marijuana store is a bad thing, right? And it, it imagines that the people who go there are going to be bad people and, and aren't going to be the kind of people that young children should be exposed to which is kind of funny because all the people that young children are exposed to, not all of them, but I'm sure, you know, a measurable percentage of them have tried marijuana from time to time. And, you know, if it's going to really become part of our society, it should be part of our society. It should be independent of whether any one particular person smokes or doesn't smoke. And, you know, I I hope that all of these are going to pass. Uh, It's looking like very close calls in Arkansas, Missouri, and South Dakota, Arkansas, who the hell knows what goes down there. Missouri's my home state, and I was still surprised they got medical. Uh, but I understand that there's a push for it. But Missouri politics are so crazy, there's no telling what will happen. And South Dakota is Christy Nome, so I'm not even touching that one with a 10-foot pole. Yeah, and I, I agree with you that getting out there and voting and exercising your right to vote, I'm a firm believer, is one of the most important things, if not the most important thing, that you're granted and afforded as a, a right as an American citizen. And, uh, you know, not to sound sensationalist, but, you know, if, if you don't go out and vote this, uh, this time, uh, you can't really complain about what might happen about your right to vote next time. So, you know, I'm, I'm a, a true believer that this is probably the single most important election of our lifetime. And it certainly is setting the stage for, you know, the, the next presidential election. So, you know, if cannabis is what gets you to the polls and that's what motivates you, then, then by all means, go out there and, and, and vote. If it's, you know, some other topic that you hold dear, um, you know, by all means, go out and vote for that as well. But it is, you know, very, very important that you, you know, take the time to, to exercise that right, as is the fundamental sort of bedrock of our democracy. So I know that if I was in any of those states, you know, look, if we can actually pass five more states with adult use, which I'm not sure we can, but if we can, that opens up 16 million more people that have access to adult use cannabis in this country. Uh, that's not a meaningful number when, when you, you know, look at it in terms of some of the larger state uh, populations that we have, you know, compared to a California or a Texas or a Florida. But when you think about, you know, sort of where the tipping point is in changing federal legalization in general, adding 16 million people in a country of, you know, 330 million people is material. You know, that's, uh, it, it's, it's not quite, you know, it's about 4% of our population that we're adding. And every time you add a few more percent, it, it makes a difference. It makes a difference politically. It makes a difference in, in public sentiment. It makes a difference in the people's lives that aren't getting arrested or incarcerated for this anymore. You know, you talk about an ice cream store being next door. I mean, yeah, I, I challenge which one is the, the greater harm, you know, which one, you know, causes more long-term issues. If you're eating ice cream all day or smoking bongets all day, you know, jury's out. And as, you know, Mason Tavert pointed out with respect to, to the comparison to alcohol, cannabis is safer, you know, and, and I'm still the first one to tell you that as a person that consumes much more alcohol than I do cannabis, I, I still know that when I do that, that I'm choosing the, the, the more evil of the two uh, of the two substances. It's, you know, everyone's got their personal choice of what to consume. But either way, I'd never want to see anyone incarcerated for alcohol consumption any more than I'd ever want to see someone incarcerated for cannabis consumption. So, you know, if you're a cannabis user, uh, and I suspect that everyone listens to our program is, um, get out there. Get out there and vote if you're in South Dakota. Get out there and vote if you're in Missouri. Get out and vote if you're in any of these other states. Or even if you're, you're seeing incremental change, and there's a measure on the on the California ballot right now about where to allocate tax dollars, you know, from cannabis. And you know, again, is it just one more person with their hand in the pocket of our industry that's just causing the industry to, to collapse right now? You know, we need to to get people out there that are not just talking about legalization, but how to improve 
the uh, the legislation that's already on the books in a lot of these states. So that that's all I've got on, on my stump speech as far as elections go. But it, it makes life a hell of a lot easier when you have laws in front of you that um, that work with what your lifestyle is and, and, and what you choose to do. And, you know, at this point, it's no secret that a lot of Americans consume cannabis. So let's protect them when they're doing it. Let's make it safe. Let's make it regulated. And uh, let, let's take the stigma away from it. Well said. And I would go a step further and I would say, if you're out there with people and you hear people dissing marijuana, again, whether you're a user or not a user, call them out, set the record straight, tell people to go read about what they're talking about. Uh, you know, this doesn't have to be words spread through people. And oh, we, we all result into the lowest common denominator, uh, as it seems we often, too often do in this country these days. Uh, you know, and speak up for this right. If it's not this right, it's going to be somebody else's right for something else. And uh, this is a good right to have. It's a good right to be available for people. Uh, I'll, I'll go a step further, Rob. And my wife, unfortunately, gets upset when I say this, but that's okay. I'll say it anyway. I think you can make an argument that marijuana is the safest uh, thing that human beings can consume. You can eat too much and die. You can drink too much and die. You can uh, consume too much alcohol and die. There's so many things you could put in your body and die, but no matter how much marijuana you smoke, it's not going to cause you to have an overdose because it can't cause you to have an overdose. So, you know, I don't think we have to quite take it to that extreme, but the point is that if we're going to talk about comparative safety among uh, items that we're going to let adults use for purposes of relaxation and intoxication, uh, you know, anybody who wants to tell you otherwise is lying if they're not going to say that this really is the safest and healthiest, if you want, way uh, to do that and, 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 and be able to relax with everyone. You know, and that would be nice to be able to do. And, you know, look, it, it's getting easier and easier, right? A couple of weeks ago, we talked about uh, Florida and Circle K. Now in Toronto, Rob, we've got Uber Eats and Leafly. What do you think about that? Yeah, absolutely. It's going to happen. I mean, it wasn't a question of when this happened. You're going to start seeing bigger and bigger industries get involved in the space. And as they feel safer, you know, uh, doing so, we've talked about it a lot as far as, you know, the, the, the normalization of cannabis. Uber Eats is, is, is a natural one. You know, and I think everyone's been waiting to see whether or not Uber Eats enters the U.S. market when, when they can. And I think that, you know, the largest delivery companies have always been fearful of, you know, either Amazon or some other company like an Uber Eats that already has the logistics and already has the, um, the platform built to be able to service uh, the consumer base. I mean, there's certain businesses that if they want to come in and swoop into the canvas market, it's almost impossible to prevent them from doing it. So am I surprised they're doing it in Canada? No, I'm, I'm not. And I think that's going to, you know, make for a very, very efficient way to, uh, to procure cannabis in I can't wait till I'm ordering eights by drone. You know, I don't, I don't think we're, I don't think we're all that far off at this point. So do I think we're going to see more, you know, big industry get involved? Uh, yeah, I do. And I think at every possible level you are. I think that's true. It, it's just, it's, it's nice to see. It's nice to see that uh, they're partnering with a, a company that is well-established and everybody knows who Uber Eats is for God's sake. Um, and that a company like Uber Eats, just like an organization like Circle K, uh, their willingness to reach out and partner up with, uh, with, uh, par with businesses in the cannabis industry is what's moving this forward, is what's normalizing things for people. And that's a wonderful thing. There's no reason why it shouldn't be. If I can order a dinner and have it delivered right to my front door, why can't I order uh, a couple of joints or half an ounce of my favorite uh, strain and have it delivered to my door? And it, it, we can talk about it all we want. And, you know, back in the day, we all looked Domino's Pizza. Wouldn't it be cool if there was somebody who would deliver marijuana too? 
well, you know, 40 years later, here it comes. So uh, I'm all for it and very excited to see. I hope it's all successful everywhere and that uh, other states uh, are willing to accommodate these types of businesses and let them uh, let them modernize uh, cannabis to the next level. Uh, me too. And I hope it happens before the wheels come off this industry any more than they already are. And, you know, some of the other news we're seeing coming out this week is, you know, again, more more kind of doom and gloom, especially in the California market of, uh, of companies not being able to service their debt stacks and restructurings that are that are becoming increasingly difficult. And I think that, you know, the next MJ Biz Conference, if you were to say what the overarching theme is going to be of a lot of the people you, you listen to on those panels is, you know, how do we stay in business? How do we survive? How do we get through, you know, 2023? Uh, you know, I, I know an article was just put out talking about uh, the defaults that are happening largely to some of the larger REITs that hold the real estate of these companies. Most recently, uh, you know, King's Garden defaulting on a $2.3 million uh, note payment or $2.3 million note, I should say, that they owe to Innovative Industrial Properties, which is a, a San Diego-based REIT. And I can tell you that they're not the only ones. You know, like if you were to look at IIP's balance sheet over the last year and you were to look at the write-downs they've had, you know, for them, like they've, they've created a business model that works very, very nicely and throws off a lot of cash so long as the groups that they're funding or they're, you know, buying the real estate for are able to service the notes. And I'll tell you that the IP is, uh, there's a fair amount of counterparty risk. A lot of things they've done, they've had a lot of other previous write downs that they've had to suffer through. So, you know, on one side, they charge a pretty high coupon to, to give people capital. But on the other side, they, uh, they have to balance that against the risk of default. So it's, it's tricky. And, you know, part of the risk of default is, is people lending at these outrageous you know, prices. So, you know, IIP's business is a little bit different. It's mostly sale leasebacks. We'll buy the real estate of these companies and then, uh, and then lease it back to them. But they lease it back to them at a, at a cap rate that's significantly higher than market. And, uh, and, and that makes it very difficult as a, a lessee to, uh, to, to make sure you're making those payments. And I can tell you that IAP holds holds the real estate of a lot of the biggest companies in this space. So, you know, keep an eye on this one. It's not just it's not just IAP, it's a lot of the other groups that are doing sale leasebacks on real estate as well. They all saw this great opportunity saying, well, banks aren't gonna hold your mortgage, so we'll hold it. And, uh, you know, then the other big question is, how the hell did they get away with listing on the NASDAQ when their entire business model is predicated on lending to cannabis-based businesses Yet a canvas-based business doesn't have that same ability to, to, to list on the same exchange. So we're watching that space closely right now as, as Canopy is trying to do their deal right now. As we talked about last week, the NASDAQ is saying no to that transaction, but the TSX up in Toronto is saying yes. So, you know, is there a creative solution now for American-based or American-domiciled canvas-based businesses to start listing on an exchange that's significantly better than the CSC or the OTC markets in the U.S. and start getting on the TSX by replicating this um this creative um, uh, structure that the guys over at Denton's, you know, multinational law firm has put together that they think they've, they've cracked this nut. They think there's a formula here. And if there is, I think you'll be watching people rush to the TSX replicating the same um, ring fenced uh, formula that Denton's has created for Canopy. Well, look, you know, I'm, I'm far from an expert on that kind of stuff and uh, uh, appreciate that you are. But, you know, one of the things I can't help but take out of all of this is that there's so many people out there who just naturally assume that anybody with a with a dispensary license or a cultivation license is printing money. We know that not to be true, and, and we've talked about that c- quite a bit. But I wonder how hard it is, you know, for the average person to to truly sit there and say, "What's wrong with this industry?" Everybody talks about how marijuana sales are up. There's always lines at the dispensaries. Uh, there, there's so much going on. Uh, 
how can it be that this is this is what the situation is? And and well, we know the answer because you can't deduct your ordinary business expenses and you can't get operating funds from anywhere except going on a private market and probably playing rates that are significantly higher than what you would have to pay if you could walk into a bank and get a standard operating loan like any other business can. And, you know, far be it for me to tell lenders, you know, what their what their interest rates should be. Uh, but certainly people who want to get into the cannabis industry and 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 want to attempt to grow their their business have to face this reality that, uh, you know, unless they are independently funded and, and have their own means to do it, they're going to have to turn to this market of, of private lenders uh, and, you know, have to see what happens. You know, by the same token, you know, it seems to me that on the private lenders side, there's you know, there's, there's some, you know, real thinking that has to go on too, right? On the one hand, you can say, look, we're here. We can take advantage of this like nobody's business. What a perfect time. They can't get loans from banks. They have to come to us. We have a captive audience and we can really do that. But at the same time, I would like to think that there's a little pushback that says, yeah, but we don't want these guys all to default. Or maybe they do. I don't know. But, but right. I mean, it, 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 it's one thing to say I can charge whatever interest rate I want. It's another thing to charge an interest rate that's respect of of you know who you're dealing with in the industry they're in, and I, I would have to think that in the long run, a client who survives and can pay back their entire loan and keep their business operating has to be far more valuable to a lender. Yeah, I mean, there's always that uh, that old mantra of you know, are you loaning to help a business or is it loan to own? And uh, you know, what I'll say is in the canvas industry, a lot of the lenders are finding out that they can't loan to own. You certainly can't lend and secure against the license. It's not transferable in most states, or at least not forced transferable. Most of these banks, you know, most of these lending uh, groups don't want to be on a license anyway. Uh, they certainly can't uh, secure against the inventory, you know, because now they're, they're holding, uh, you know, a Schedule One narcotic. So, you know, do these guys want that exposure? They don't. So they, essentially they're securing against real estate and they're securing against equipment uh, and then, you know, whatever else they can, you know, legally secure against. But oftentimes your security is, is grossly undervalued by comparison to the, uh, to, to the amount that's lent. So, you know, you're undersecuritized coming out of the gate. They think the best way to handle that is to put on, you know, excessive, you know, fees and excessive coupons to, uh, to a lot of these notes. And ultimately, then, as you said, all you're doing is exacerbating the issues for the, uh, for, for the, the, the group you're lending to. And if it causes them to fail, everyone loses. And uh, I think a lot of lenders are, are, are realizing that right now. And they don't have the same ability to be as predatory as they might be in other industries as a result thereof. So it's, it's tricky. You know, it's a, it's a tricky industry right now. I, I advised a, a group this morning, an old buddy of mine from law school, had a client of his call me this morning about raising capital in the space. And I spent 45 minutes and I'm sort of walking him through every pitfall that, that you know, is out there. And this is a guy that, you know, has a successful business already and is trying to grow it. And, uh, you know, I was like, come on, man, like, you, you know what you're facing off against right now. Is this really the time that you want to be uh, be aggressive, you know, or it's the time that you actually want to be opportunistic, you know, raise some capital, wait it out, weather the storm. You know, if you're running a, a successful location now, you don't need to swing for the fences. There's plenty of opportunities going to come simply by watching the attrition um, from, from a lot of these under undercapitalized businesses that are unfortunately at death's door right now. So, you know, uh, again, cautionary tale to all would-be cannabis operators out there it is not nearly as rosy as one thinks. And uh, it is a absolute grind out there right now. It's the toughest market I've ever seen. Well, you know, that may not be the news that everyone wants to hear, but it is the news. And, uh, you know, certainly come to MJ Biz or go out to other conferences or start reading up on it to to get a bit of better feel for this or just listen to the Deadhead Cannabis Show. And we're happy to educate you and update you as much as we can and, and to keep you coming back. 
Um, I, I don't want to stray too far away from where we started out with all of our good Grateful Dead stuff and a lot of good uh, music news. And we're not a political show and, I, and we're really not a political show. Uh, and I don't view this as being a political statement. I view this as being uh, a statement that any decent human being would make and would hope that anybody out there, regardless of their uh, political stripes or colors, would be able to understand that and make the same type of statement. Uh, but I certainly want to wish uh, Paul Pelosi a very uh, quick and safe return to good health. Uh, what happened to him is unspeakable. If it had happened to a Republican, it would have been unspeakable. And the fact that there are certain people who choose to take this opportunity to not only degrade Mr. Pelosi, but also to degrade many members of the uh, uh, gay and lesbian communities by suggesting that this was nothing more than a, a homosexual dalliance gone bad uh, is so far below the what any decent human being should do that it seems to me that should be a disqualifier, not just from politics, but basically from life. So uh, sorry to get on my soapbox for a minute, but I, I just can't help but say, uh, you know, regardless of who you want to vote for for president, regardless of whether you think taxes should be up or down, regardless of any of that, can we at least just have enough respect to be able to say to somebody who was badly beaten um, by a robber who broke in and there's video so everybody can prove how the guy got in and that he wasn't already there like President Trump has suggested was the case. Let's drop that stuff and let's just all wish Mr. Pelosi a quick return to health and our regards and, and best wishes to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi as well, since uh, must be very difficult to see your husband attacked for someone coming for you. Um, but let's just roll right out of that if we can and go right back into our fun stuff here. And that is uh, Grateful Dead and good music all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's, let's, let's go back to a song that ends with, uh, with, with the uncle getting killed. <laughs> So let's let's go from political violence to Western violence, Larry. Well, that, that that's true, and and, and that, you make a good point there. And, and I guess I hadn't really quite uh, thought that all the way through before I did it. But yes, me and my uncle does. But somehow, in me and my uncle, there, there's a little more poetic uh, justice to what we're hearing about than some of the nonsense that's being thrown around here. I don't know, man. I don't know. From one rogue to another, right? It's uh, it's the passing of the torch from from one outlaw that uh, that's a, a bad guy to teaching the other outlaws so well that, that he uh, that he imitates the behavior. So, you know, look, a fun a fun song, but ultimately, you know, I don't, I don't think there's any heroes in me and my uncle. No, I think you're probably right, and, and uh, all points well taken. And so just so anyone doesn't think that we were trying to actually put this together like this, this song is picked uh, not so much because of the uh, murder that does take place uh, uh, at the penultimate moment of the song, but because this was just more of a great fun night of the boys just really kicking it back. They come out of Dark Star into drums, not a very long drum solo. This was still Bill Kreutzmann uh, doing it all by himself. Uh, and then Bill gives his wonderful, you know, thundering drum introduction to the other one. Uh, they go through, they play an absolutely electric other one that's all over the place. And then without skipping a beat, they dive right into me and my uncle. And, you know, in, in, the, in the show notes what I, that I read before I even listened to it, they said, you really need to hear it to both comprehend and believe that the band in full other one mode continues its psychedelic exploration right on through me and my uncle. As someone on archive says, it's almost as if the other one is playing me and my uncle, which is not only a cool as hell thought, but also a pretty accurate description of what transpired. Um, Dan, uh, go ahead and crank that for us, and then we'll come back and talk about it some more. 
I love to go. Love my uncle. God rest his soul. He taught me good Lord. Taught me all I know. Taught me so well. Oh, I grabbed that gold. And I left his dinner by the side of the road. Now, I will say that in, in picking that section, I really like, uh, as part of this idea that they're just kind of carrying the other one theme all the way through, it's really almost a seamless transition from a cowboy song right back into uh, one of their all-time classic psychedelic uh, rock songs. And, and, and it doesn't seem as like they slow down or they make any change. They just, they just keep going. Earlier in the uh, Me and My Uncle clip, uh, or earlier in the song, you can really hear a much heavier influence of the other one kind of hanging over it the whole time. And, you know, Rob, I just kind of chalked that up to, you know, in 71, they were, they were still doing a lot of experimenting. They were still, uh, you know, working new tunes in and, and trying to find a way for those new tunes of Americana, if we will, to fit in with the tunes that, you know, were made famous during the primal dead era and, you know, really have a much more, you know, deep psychological, uh, psychedelic, I should say, maybe psychological too, bent to them. And uh, it's always fun to hear them try and take all of them and, and cram them together into one. Yeah, for sure. And you always forget that I think I, statistically, I think me and my uncle was a song the Grateful Dead played more than any other song. So, you know, that, that means that it was in the catalog all the way through. But whenever I think about me and my uncle, I always think it's one of those songs that actually has a definitive ending. You know, it ends with a note. Oftentimes they take that ending note and go right into like uh, a big, big river or a uh, mama tried or a Mexicali or a um, Cumberland. You know, there's certain songs that would flow out of me and my uncle really nice to kind of keep with that same key and the same sort of, you know, cowboyish theme. But, you know, to, to do this transition, which is like, as soon as it sort of ends flow right into the other one, it's a, uh, it, again, we, I think you and I love highlighting things that are out of the ordinary for Grateful Dead setless or just, you know, more playful experiment, uh, experimentary than, than others. And this is a great example of that. This is a classic 1971 moment of, you know, sort of the, the end of the psychedelic era, end of the cowboy era, the Americana era, and, and finding a way to fuse those two in the way that they played the me and my uncle and the way they just came right out of it into the other one. So it's super cool. I love it. And, and, and the second stanza of the other one, if you will, that, that, that they blow into as soon as they finish me and my uncle uh, is just as, you know, otherworldly, you might say. It, it's a brash. Now I'm reading the review. Brash roaring into the ether, throwing off stardust and cosmic sparks the entire way. So uh, I don't know about you guys, but that's more than enough to convince me uh, that on the drive home tonight, I will be uh, calling up Archive or Relisten and uh, listening to this for a little while because it's, it's that good and, and it's really worth it. Speaking of great music and great performances, Rob, did you hear that Jerry Harrison and Adrian Ballou have announced tour dates uh, for their uh, unique performance of uh, the Talking Heads Remain in Light album? I did, and I loved your comment when you actually sent me the notes on it. I'd just seen the announcement a few hours before that, but you know, the, the idea of, yeah, is there anyone that Adrian Ballou has not played with? In terms of, like, prog rock, avant-garde, um, you know, King Crimson-y, like, 
you know, if you think about who, who he inspired, you know, you think about like certain, you know, guitar players being inspired by the Garcias of the world, but then you think about the guys from like, let's say Umphreys, you know, and you think Jake Sininger and, uh, and, uh, Brendan Bayless probably being a lot more inspired by a guy like Adrian Blue than they were probably by Garcia. A- Adrian Blue is a, for people that aren't familiar with this music, a really, really interesting player and a very, very different player. And in, in, in terms of like, you know, setting the prog rock stage, uh, it doesn't get any better. So it's a very cool collaboration. And anytime someone says they're going to go out and play the Talking Heads, I'm all about it. It, it doesn't matter, you know, who's taking it on. Uh, I'm always happy to, to, to see them do it. So, uh, so no, it's a, a super cool announcement, a great album, and it's a great collaboration. It is. It's one of my all-time favorite non-Grateful Dead rock albums. Uh, it was, I think it was so, you know, instrumental in, in the changes it brought to, you know, contemporary American rock at the time when, uh, you know, the Talking Heads released it. Uh, it's wonderful to have, you know, Jerry Harrison as part of this as, you know, as one of the original guys. And we had a chance to see David Byrne's uh, musical performance uh, a year or two ago that does obviously feature a lot of Talking Head tunes. But this I almost kind of look at as like the difference between, you know, David, certainly David Byrne is the genius behind it all, or one of the big geniuses behind it all. But he kind of plays it his way. I kind of look at Jerry Harrison and Adrian Ballou. They're just going to come out and rack out to it. And uh, very, very excited to have an opportunity to go see that um, in February already of, of 2023. We're looking at seeing live music. But uh, that's going to be a good one to be paying attention to and uh, counting down the days. Very, very excited. And hopefully we'll get a whole group of fun concert goers together and uh, strike out and do that and come back onto the show and talk all about it. For sure. And, and look, I, I think Talking Heads are one of those bands where the front man gets, you know, too much of the attention the way that like, you know, Pink Floyd, Roger Waters got so much attention. And you forget that like the Talking Heads without Tina Weymouth wouldn't have been the Talking Heads. And you forget that like there would be no Stop Making Sense without Bernie Worrell playing his worlds are on that. And, you know, you think about the most like iconic moments of, of, of Stop Making Sense and and I'd say Bernie contributes as, as much as anyone. You know, David was kind of the creative genius in, in writing the music and setting a tempo. But that band as a band, I mean, if you were to say, like, pick any band at the, at the peak of their power, the peak of their performance, you know, who would you want to go back and see? And, like, you know, obviously like the, the Bowies and the Queens pop up. But, but seeing the Talking Heads in 79 or 1980, like, you know, that, that would have been as high on my list as absolutely anything that I could have seen. Just because those guys as a band were just, just on fire. And it was, you know, like 1983 when Stop Making Sense came out, it was kind of a culmination of, you know, like watching them get to that moment where they were just that innovative, that creative and totally setting the stage of like rewriting what the New York sound was at the time. So you don't hear me that passionate about a lot of like non-jam bands, but the the talking heads for me are, are one that if you could say like get them back together before the members start passing away and, you know, get them back together one more time. You know, if you were to say put one band back together right now, uh, by far and away for me, it'd be Talking Heads. I would have to agree. I, it, it's it's the greatest band that I never got to see perform that was actually playing during an era when I was alive, and uh, and always regretted that that I never caught one of their shows. Uh, poor timing, uh, whatever it might have been. But I love your comment about all of the other musicians in the band uh, who, who, who contribute so much. And of course, you know, that has me thinking of the Tom Tom Club, right? Which both uh, Jerry Harrison and for a while, Adrian Ballou were both a part of. And, and Tina Weymouth. And Tina Weymouth, exactly. It was basically the band without David Byrne, um, you know, with, with a really great percussion beat. And uh, um, that's one of my favorite parts of the, the Stop Making Sense show where all of a sudden, now we're going to have the Tom Tom Club. And, you know, they switch uh, personnel around a little bit. They get a great Tom Tom Club performance. And now we're back to the Talking Heads. And, 
you know, it was seamless and it was great fun. And, and uh, I love the Tom Tom Club, too. Uh, such 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 great music. And I, I would agree with Rob. You know, we, we don't often get so excited about non jam band type bands. But if you have a chance to go see these guys, this should be one on your must see list. And then just one last musical note, and then we'll, we'll, we'll look into saying goodbye to the dead and the boys. And it's unfortunately an, another sad note, but as, as we've been saying all along, as the years go by, unfortunately, this is going to become more and more common. But recently, the music world lost Robin Sylvester at the age of 72. Uh, Robin, in addition to being an all-around great uh, rock bass player, uh, was for a while the regular bass player for Rat Dog. In fact, he kind of followed in Rob Wasserman's footsteps, which quite frankly, about as large a footsteps as you could ever have to fill in the rock world, but always did it in a way that uh, endeared him to the band, endeared him to the band's fans. It, it's an unfortunate loss. And, you know, these days we can say at 72, it's an untimely loss. Yeah, no, definitely uh, sad to hear of his passing. Um, a terrific, terrific bass player, terrific musician. So one that um, will be missed. And, you know, again, anytime that, you know, part of the sort of the Grateful Dead extended family uh, loses a member, it's, it, it's sad just because, these guys are all, they're all getting older and, uh, it's not just, you know, the, the core members of the band, but it's the core members of, of the, uh, the supporting bands, whether it's the Garcia band or Rat Dog or, or any of the other incarnations that they've come up with over the years. So they'll be missed. And, you know, before we sign off, I'll, I'll give a more positive note in, in the music world right now. And if anyone didn't get a chance to see it, um, take, take a look at what Billy Strings pulled off the other night, uh, which is a sort of an, an ode to, uh, to what, Fish has done at Dick's Sporting Goods, you know, for their uh, for their annual uh, Labor Day sort of weekends. But he spelled out the words "Thank you, Willie" uh, with his song selection for you know the Willie Nelson show that uh, that he did the other night. So if you haven't had a chance to check out what Billy did, and if you also haven't had a chance to check out the video of his Halloween night performance where he's playing um, a, a lot of um, heavy metal tunes. Look, that guy is as real deal as they come. It's amazing to me how many different genres he can do. He's not just a bluegrass musician, but you want to talk about someone that just you know, can run the gamut of, of playing different stuff. Billy is slaying it right now. He's absolutely slaying it. And so I'd, I'd recommend pull the video of his Halloween performance and definitely go check out the Thank You Willie show as well. So uh, hats off to Billy Strings for, for really carrying the torch of, you know, the next wave of, of true, like, you know, right there with Derek Trucks, right there with Trey, right there with some of the other, like, you know, younger guys, the, the John Mayers of the world, that uh, Jack Whites that are just that good at their craft. Uh, Billy Strings is, is so sick right now. Okay, so, Rob, I'm going to throw this right back at you then because it turns out that Adrian Ballou and uh, Jerry Harrison are bringing their Remain in Light tour to Chicago on February 25th. The very next day, February 26th, Billy Strings is playing at the Ryman Theater in Nashville. And I'm sitting here uh, having a discussion with my wife about whether we want to stay in Chicago and see Remain in Light or whether we want to take advantage to go down to Nashville and see Billy Strings. And, you know, for somebody just walking in and listening to you talk about both of those groups, uh, that's a pretty hard decision to make. It's an easy decision to make. You'll see Billy Strings for the next 20 years. You're not going to see Adrian Ballou playing with uh, playing with Harrison for, for much longer. Seize the moment. See the one that's fleeting. Uh, we, we've got years of Billy. Go see the Talking Head show. Bless you. That's all I'm going to say. And and not that it matters. Alex said the exact same thing. So there you go, man. We, we've, we've got this locked down. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Love that answer. Awesome. Well, listen, that's all, that's all I've got. You know, I'll leave with my advice on what music to see for you, Larry. But uh, I'm excited to see you in person in a couple of weeks. Excited to see Dan Humiston. 
But, uh, but you know, from Southern California, I'll, I'll say my goodbyes right now. Another fun episode. And thanks for curating some great music for us today. That was a, a super cool show to pick out. Thank you. I, it, it was a lot of fun and I really like it. Um, we're going to leave you, which on the uh, set list would be called Playing in the Band, a tune you're all familiar with. But what I've done here is uh, closing the same way we opened. The boys were having so much fun this night that they couldn't stop the banter. And so now we're going to hear on our way out a little more of their craziness up on stage, a uh, joke that modern people might be able to relate to the Bandario Speedwagon or maybe not. Uh, but either way, listen to the boys. Have a good time. Thank you for listening. Uh, as always, we appreciate it. Please go out and vote and uh, enjoy your cannabis responsibly. Talk to you next week. Hey, for you radio listeners, this is what's known as dead air. Get it? <laughs> Who, who, who's the kid looking for? Ayers, Ayers a good looking little kid. Somebody's kid. Looking for somebody named Joni. Okay, well, whoever Joni is, your kid is up here and everything is all right. Anybody know any good jokes?
Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Tune into a major journey podcast today, where guests take listeners on journeys and immerse themselves in the roller coaster ride both in and out of the cannabis space that brought them to where they are today. Throughout our conversations, guests share valuable lessons that they've learned along the way that listeners can use to empower growth both in their personal and professional lives. Check out A Major Journey today on all major podcast platforms.